0: It's because we're seeing that people are really starting to care about the environmental impact of where they live. There's really no reluctance from a developer. We're so excited to finally be able to put in these things.
1: This is not complicated, just green, and it's time for another installment of Common Sense for Better Construction, bridging the information gap to help you reach a brighter future in the build world. Welcome, friends. I'm your host, James, and I'm grateful to have you listening today to the eighth episode in our series focused on development and the crucial ways it impacts our world from the individual people to the communities to the planet. Last week was a fascinating conversation with Ryan Bowersox about development that's eco positive, meaning positive for both the ecological systems and positive for the economic systems. Ryan discussed the carbon credit markets and opened my eyes to the problems and concerns, but also the potential and the possibilities. If you don't understand carbon markets, you're not alone. However, through regulations and incentives, the markets are sure to become a much more prominent part of the U.S. economy and your everyday life. Likewise, green development in real estate is moving from the fringe to the mainstream as developers are responding to ESG requirements. Those developers are reaping the benefits such as improved marketing, lower maintenance costs, and increased tenant interest. As building standards increase and users' expectations are changing, development teams have grown to include experts in environmental design, energy and water conservation, and designing for social impact. There's a chorus of diverse voices, mutual respect, fostering an environment where creative problem solving can flourish. Both the overall systems of a building and the impact of a building are expected to move towards a more efficient and harmonious synergy. In order to accomplish this, the best practices for collaboration have adjusted to manage stakeholders' input more effectively. In order to reach these goals of better buildings, healthier people, and a resilient planet, a project's teammates must check their egos so the team can offer and receive more creative solutions for more successful projects. This is the way to ensure we're attracting the best prospects who actually want to build better, and are not just reluctantly being forced into compliance. One such development team is the Atlanta-based 3rd and Urban, who call themselves Developers That Build Community, modern urban infill that anchors people, not just city blocks, that retains context, history, and experience, not just tenants, and creates culture and connection, not just ROI. A few months ago, I was introduced to 3rd and Urban teammate Jillian Jopka, With an architecture degree, she's proven herself an irreplaceable asset to her project teams. An expert in managing a development's budgeting and advocating for green design, Jillian understands the importance of looking at the big picture and seeing how eco-positive design is shaping the industry. There's a rising prominence of eco-positive design in modern architecture, highlighting how green development is not only good for the planet, but an excellent marketing tool, a cost saver, and an avenue to increase tenant interest. A more stable community means a more stable economy, both of which make it easier to get more from the resources that a community consumes. Stabilize the people and you stabilize the money, which requires less money, which means we have more. Not just more money, but more opportunities to improve our lives and help the planet. That's not complicated. It's just green. And I'm excited to share our conversation with you. Please enjoy. This podcast is presented by Creative Interface Architecture and Interiors. Please visit creativeinterface.design.
0: I think a big thing for me is, you know, growing up with a single mom, not having a ton of money growing up, really learning how to stretch a budget, really learning how to bring beauty into spaces. You know, I mentioned how we were always rearranging furniture in our house, Mm -hmm. really learning how to do things like that, you know, without just endless income. Most of my job now, most developers' jobs are working with a budget, figuring out how to stretch a budget. And that's been huge for me. Knowing the touch points that I can spend money on that are going to make the biggest difference. Backsplash tile. I always talk about because it's pretty low in terms of the overall budget. It's not a huge spend, but it's something that a resident really notices and sees. Mm -hmm. So that's something that I'm thinking, okay, I can really pay a lot of attention to a backsplash tile spec because it's not going to move the needle on the budget that much, but it's going to make a huge impact in the finished product. And being able to make decisions like that and knowing what's going to make an impact Mm -hmm. in a resident's life or in their experience of leasing, that's just such a big part of my job.
1: So I'm curious about your perspective on eco-positive construction, green design, whatever your term of choice, and how that has played a role in the developments that you've worked on. If you can give just some examples of when it's been something that was a high priority.
0: It's starting to play a bigger role now in development, um, but that's pretty recent. And the biggest thing that's changed has been the requirements uh, from the funding. You know, when you're putting together the financial model and, and the equity stack for development, you know, you have different funds, different investment partners who are giving their set of requirements for a building. You know, obviously a lot of those are financially driven, sometimes they're design driven, Right now, we're seeing a lot more ESG requirements on those lists. And that's really the money is driving the project. So that's really mm-hmm. what's encouraging development to put in more green requirements. Because I I want to all day long. But if there's no one to pay for it, mm-hmm. <laughs> then it's very hard to do that. Because ultimately, the building has to make money, right? Yeah. If the equity is dictating a building be lead or a building have some sort of positive environmental impact, Mm -hmm. it gives me a lot more bandwidth because then I can go to them and say, okay, well, this is going to be how much it costs Mm -hmm. to make a building lead. And they're going to accept that because it's a requirement. So I've seen that with one of my deals in Charlotte. There was an ESG requirement from the equity partner. And so that building is lead. It's a really fun project (laughs) to do lead certification because it was part adaptive reuse part new construction, retail campus, if you will, of four different buildings.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. So we were able to come up with a lot of different creative ways, working with that lead checklist between the adaptive reuse and between all the greenery and the kind of massive site work that we were putting in. It's adjacent to the light rail in Charlotte, so... Mm -hmm. It really um, was kind of the perfect project.
1: Yeah, it checks a lot of boxes.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
1: ESG, and I know that the SEC is just having a lot of public companies uh, report things that they never asked them to report before. Some of these feel like a carrot being dangled, and some of these feel like a stick. From the perspective of a developer, is the carrot enough to convince a developer? If we just speak in the terms of what these uh, green solutions or eco-positive design can result in profitability, or result in a more t- uh, stable tenant base, or the longevity of the success of the building, and or how how infrequently you have to do renovations or operational costs. Is that enough, or do you think there's always going to be the requirements forcing their way into this conversation that makes the industry as a whole reluctantly come along?
0: Yeah, I, w- I would say developers are really eager. To put these things in the project, anything that we can put in the building ultimately is likely going to have a positive impact on the sale of the building, on lowering maintenance costs if we're talking about something like Energy Star in Mm. multifamily, even just in marketing the building. You know, when I did Star Metals offices, that was LEED certified and all of our brokers leasing the office space would say that because tenants are interested in Mm. working in buildings that are LEED certified. I'll tell it to residents who are leasing apartments because we're seeing that people are really starting to care about the environmental impact of where they live. There's so many benefits to doing it. The biggest barrier has been who's going to pay for it. And now we're starting to knock down that barrier in terms of the different requirements of these large companies, you know, wanting to meet their ESG standards. I think there's really no reluctance from a developer. We're we're so excited to finally be able to put in these things.
1: Yeah, I'm excited to hear that. But I've also heard the opposite. And I guess it just depends on who you're talking to. And I I need to make sure I surround myself in a better company.
0: Well, it creates more work. Just like I was talking earlier about reviewing the unit floor plans with a fine-tooth comb. A lot of these things that make really great buildings create more work. Mm -hmm. And there's plenty of developers who make the same profits and put in less work. Mm -hmm. So it's really, I guess, dependent on the developer. For me, I... Spent a lot of time learning about lead. I hired consultants and had them walk me through lead checklists. And, you know, this was not my background, but it was worth it. You know, to learn about these things and be able to speak intelligently about lead and knowing what I'm putting in the building and understanding how my building is contributing to the lead checklist and that's contributing mm-hmm. to lead certification. You know, it takes time to learn all of that. It does depend on the developer, you know, being able to be willing to put in the time, I'll say.
1: What can great development and green development provide for people and for the planet and for profit?
0: Better question for you to answer than for me, I think. <laughs>
1: the answer in, in my mind is the selling, like whatever this answer is, is the way to get that point across to the people who are reluctant. I've got my answers. It's just always fascinating to hear what do we stand again?
0: Anything that's pushing design forward is the right direction. You know, because so often, especially if buildings are making money in the same way that they've always been built. Developers are really just willing to accept the status quo and continue to build in that way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, real estate is one of the slowest industries to change and adapt. Mm-hmm. Innovation and construction and real estate is is pretty tough to mm-hmm. push along. You know, and, and part of that is just the complexities yeah. of doing what we do. But I think there's a real concern in remaining stagnant. This is less of a green point, more of just a design point, but in Atlanta, we have so many buildings that are all starting to look the same, Right. you know, and it's mostly because that's what works financially. That's what works from a construction timeline and people are still renting apartments in them or Mm -hmm. leasing them. So it's really hard to to get people to do something differently, Mm -hmm. but do we really want to live in a city where... Every building is five-story and,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, has the same hardy yeah. panel, the same brick. Yeah. It's not stimulating. It's not exciting. And I would say that it just takes a few developers to kind of push design forward or to push green initiatives forward. Sometimes it's not the developer making the decision. It's the capital or whatnot. But it really just takes a few projects to push forward because all of a sudden if someone does a very design forward or a very green forward project and that project is more successful it's more people want to live there it's leasing better you know than the projects that came before that raises the bar raises the standard so people will start designing more to that and that's how we really move things forward
1: What's the future that you're you're chasing? What do you hope the impact of that kind of change?
0: Yeah, ultimately, you know, I do have an architecture background and I do think a lot about the people who are living and working in my buildings. And, you know, how can I improve the lives of people who are using these buildings every day? Because it's not me. I'm not living in these apartments or most often not working in these office buildings. How can I improve the lives of people who are using these buildings every day? And it might be something really simple like... A larger window or a more energy efficient window mm-hmm. you know it's bringing their bills down it's getting more light into their apartment which is really has a lot of health benefits you know mental health mm-hmm. benefits yep. so that's what I like the focus to be on is on the end user improving their lives
1: I want to take a quick moment to say if you want to learn more about the ideas of this podcast, if you have an idea for a project, or if you're an experienced developer, our website is the place to find helpful articles, download a free project planning packet, or schedule your free Ask the Expert phone consultation. Please visit creativeinterface.design. We make eco positive construction practically impactful. There are probably a lot of people who hear this conversation and they like what we're talking about better developments. Cities that have more character and personality. Buildings that are more exciting to be a part of. But let's say that we're being listened to by somebody who's not in the market to move. And they're not building anything. They're not financing anything. They're not in this industry. But they like what we're talking about. And they want to be a part of making sure that their city and their neighborhood and their community does have buildings that are interesting and don't have buildings that are just the boring, same block, repeated, rinse and repeat. How can people get involved and start to make an impact?
0: I mean, definitely, you know, your average citizen, depending on where you live, can get involved on the neighborhood level, on the NPU level, if we're talking about Atlanta. You know, if you want to influence developers, you've got to get in front of developers. And in most municipalities, there is a forum for residents to get in front of developers, or at least developers' representation, whether it be an architect or legal counsel. Mm-hmm. But there is, a, there is an avenue for that. So find that avenue. We always talk about how difficult it is with neighborhoods because there's a lot of NIMBYs out there who don't want to see development at all. There's a lot of citizens who I've met who don't really understand development and market forces and don't want apartments because they're going to be expensive. And I have to kind of educate and say, well, actually, the more apartments we deliver, You know, the more supply in the market and the lower we're going to make everyone's rental rate. The solution to raise to high rents is not to build less. Mm -hmm. So we face a lot of challenges like that. And as a result, as an industry, we tend to look at the NPU process or something like that as a huge barrier in terms of getting a building built. But it's also an amazing avenue. It's an amazing opportunity for regular you know residents to have their voices heard and Mm -hmm. if you're feeling like you know you want your neighborhood to be improved by grocery if you're in a grocery desert we get that all the time Mm because I work in a lot of kind of neighborhoods that are transitioning from like industrial into more residential and one of the biggest things is like we want grocery we want grocery you know I don't know that if I'm building a neighborhood that I don't live in Mm -hmm. And there's only so much market research that I can do. Nothing's going to take the place of hearing directly from a resident. And we really want the building to be successful. And a big way the building's going to be successful is if people from the neighborhood inhabit it. Mm-hmm. So if someone is coming to a neighborhood meeting and telling me, you know, we really want grocery, I'm much more likely to design a space that I can lease to a grocery anchor. Mm-hmm. Um, so those type of things make a huge difference. If residents are coming to neighborhood meetings and telling us about the history of a site Mm -hmm. that could inform the design, Yeah, you know, and it could also allow us to kind of respect what was there before. Mm -hmm. So really, you know, yeah, the best way to, to influence development is to get your voice heard by developers. And the best way to do that is through different municipalities or zoning committees, mm-hmm. you know, whatever is relevant. Yeah.
1: Show up and speak up.
0: Exactly. I'm
1: trying to think of a good segue, but I don't have one. So I'm just going to be blunt about it. <laughs> <laughs> have you found yourself to be the only woman in a lot of conversations when it comes to development teams? Or are you seeing that tide shift a little bit to a little bit more representation?
0: Unfortunately, I'm still often the only woman in the room. Particularly when you're on the more financial side of things. If I'm in conversations around equity, around sourcing debt for a project, maybe around financial modeling. A lot of times I am the only woman in the room. Mm -hmm. When I get a lot of other women on the team, right now in the industry we're seeing a lot of women on the brokerage side. So I work with a lot of female office and retail brokers and then on the design side as well, I've seen architecture change a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, I still think not enough, but yeah. there's a lot more senior women designers now than, than there were 10 years ago.
1: Do you have any advice that you would give or any words of, of wisdom?
0: Don't be afraid to be the only woman in the room. I think a lot of times when it has bothered me, it's bothered me more than other people. So you sort of have to get out of your own way. If I'm sitting at a table and I'm thinking to myself, I'm the only woman here and everyone's thinking that too. You know, I have to remind myself, actually, they're not. I don't think other people are looking at me and saying Jillian's the only woman in the room. Mm -hmm. I'm there for a reason. I'm there to contribute. And that's what the focus has to be on. So it's, it's probably not the best advice really, but I feel like in a lot of my career, I've just plowed forward, tried not to focus on the fact that there's not more women there. And mm-hmm. now being in the position I am, I can you know, do what I can to encourage other women and to try to get more women in the room.
1: What do those efforts look like? for the encouragement of women, not just in the development side, but also in the architectural side, construction, this whole industry is really lacks the representation.
0: Specifically for me, it starts at the student level. One of the reasons in development we see so few women is because there's not a lot of women studying the fields that go directly into development. You know, I think architecture is much more 50/50 in terms of there. student population, right? But development, it's really not even close to 50/50. I don't know the ratios, but a lot of these programs at these schools like UGA has a great real estate development program. They're primarily men and and I know that because mm-hmm. I'm seeing the intern applications.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I can look all day long for an entry level developer and not get a single application from, from a woman across my desk and, and they're just not studying those fields. So that's one of the biggest things I think is encouraging Women to study financial modeling, real estate development programs, Mm -hmm. these typically male-dominated majors. And and that'll create the biggest change in the industry is when women are graduating with these degrees. And those degrees are most likely to wind up in development offices.
1: From the age of childhood, to start to foster that. Well, just the understanding, first of all, that it's a possibility and that the, the industry is a good place for you. You had your mother taking you around and showing you houses, which started your appreciation of it. Then she continued to foster that appreciation for it. Your experience at the Disney Mm -hmm. Symphony, the experience of an exciting building, and that kind of helps you fall in love. I think that a lot of people have that kind of a story. When they were a kid, something happened, or somebody fostered this, or somebody encouraged this, and that that was the foundation that my particular love of design all stems from. People may have that from their childhood, but then when they get to college or even earlier than that, when they're in middle school or high school, that they run into some sort of a attitude or some sort of discouragement, something that slows that momentum down. Students who are graduating from college are getting closer to 50% female. The numbers that get their license is not the same. The women who eventually become principals in a firm and shareholders and leaders of firms does not come anywhere close to those same numbers. So things are happening. During the profession and during their working time, uh, just simply because life is not the same for women as it is for men. You deal with more than men have to deal with. I know that there are efforts that we can continue to make, but I think that there's still a lot of work to do.
0: In architecture where you start to see women fall off from those principal roles is probably around the same time that women are starting families Mm -hmm. and more family responsibilities come into play. And if family life is unequal and women are handling more of that share than male partners, then uh, a lot of times the men in the office are going to succeed more and be able to put in more hours and have less appointments or less running kids around. And that's probably where you start to see men rise up in more senior roles and and women either stay stagnant or fall out of the industry. So, of course, there's a ton that individual companies can – can do in terms of work-life balance for everyone, for male and female. Summer Fridays like they do at some architecture firms or work from home structures. You know, I think there's a lot in place that workplaces can do to support. But I also think a big focus needs to be on who is studying these different majors and and how can we support their careers as soon as they come out of school. And financial fields are really intimidating to a lot of women. You know, I was intimidated Coming from the architecture side, I had a lot to learn in terms of, like, financial modeling. And I don't even think I ever used Excel in school at all. And now it's, you know, pretty much open all the time on my laptop. Yeah developers work so much in Excel. Mm-hmm. So, you know, being able to remove that intimidation piece and being supported to learn those type of things, mm-hmm. that's really important.
1: What I really like about that is we as professionals, we can do our part, but just encouraging children to see professions differently. You don't have to be in architecture. You don't have to be in development. You, already, you don't have to be in this field at all to encourage a young person to think about professions differently. And to give themselves a chance that maybe they wouldn't have given themselves that chance had you not influenced them to to open their eyes to that. And um, congratulations! Thanks. I can't imagine that on top of everything else that goes on in
0: life, especially like just because work happens to be at a very busy season right now. Yeah. I feel like I'm on project deadlines and also like a personal deadline. Yeah.
1: And. Yeah. <laughs> And it's hard to prioritize anything over the personal deadline that's that's coming, right? And you yeah. you have to take care of so many things. It's not like there's just a date on the calendar. There's sure, the doctor sure. visits and the checkups, and and I saw the packages that got delivered of the <laughs> is it car seats and stuff like that? Yeah, car seats. Is this seats. your first? Yeah. Oh wow.
0: So you can see we're like getting the house together. It's so like there's stuff yeah. Over there. Yeah.
1: That's awesome. Yeah. Since we recorded this interview, Jillian has welcomed her beautiful new baby into the world. I'm excited for Jillian, and I'm excited for her child who will grow up raised by a woman who plays a powerful and influential role in the development industry. Just a few weeks ago, I reached out to invite Jillian to join me at Kennesaw State University as guest jurors to help evaluate the work of first semester architecture students, led by their professor and my friend John Gould julian proved her commitment to the next generation of architects and the direction the development industry is heading i've always had the deepest respect for anyone who succeeds in this highly competitive industry filled with complications and obstacles but to achieve this success while managing a family is next level my two children were already born when i entered this profession and I can't say I always did a great job of balancing work and home life. I wasn't the dad I wanted to be and not the dad they deserve. And yet my wife was doing most of the heavy lifting. So deep respect for any parent juggling their family while working in this industry. Still, I can't imagine what it's like to continue working while my body makes another human. And I'll never have a clue what it's like for new moms who need extra breaks and privacy to pump. The fact that some employers would ever hold any of this against a professional who's trying to do their job is ridiculous. I'm also very proud to say this podcast has become a platform where I can proudly pledge my support and make a passionate case for doing what is necessary to improve representation in the fields of architecture and development for women and minorities. In these last eight episodes, focused on development, I've been excited to introduce my audience to four women in the development industry, as well as four black industry professionals. Unfortunately, this podcast is not a reflection of our industry. I don't bring this up to brag or to suggest I'm doing some great work to bring about equity, diversity, and inclusion, but instead to stress the importance of encouraging women and minorities to pursue careers in this field. As Jillian said today, and was the echo of several previous episodes, Our industry has a long way to go, and the efforts have to start with our children by changing children's minds about what professions are a possibility for their future. And everyone's future looks a lot brighter. We appreciate you listening. Join us again next week. We take a step outside the perimeter, way outside the perimeter, Toronto, Canada, to welcome Daniel Hall of Architects Builders Collaborative, an expert in making multifamily developments extremely affordable, extremely energy efficient, all while maintaining an extremely low carbon footprint. His ideas have proven effective in extreme weather conditions, but they can be applied anywhere. You won't want to miss it. This podcast is presented by Creative Interface Architecture and Interiors. Please visit creativeinterface.design. Find helpful articles, download your free project planning packet, or schedule your complimentary Ask the Expert phone consultation. Whether you have an idea for a project, you're an experienced developer, or you're just curious about what architects do, visit creativeinterface.design. Making eco-positive buildings practical and impactful.